Hey everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Praxis Pedagogy Cascadia 21 Special Edition. In this mini-series, I share some space with the Cascadia 21 partners from BC, Washington State, Oregon State, and California. My hope is to not only highlight these wonderful partners who've built this year's Cascadia Open Educational Summit, but to also showcase some incredible work going on in their particular areas within the Cascadia region. Thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you on the other side. Three, two, one. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. Whew, got it that time. This is a special podcast series all about Cascadia 2021. And uh, this is focused in on some of the partners that have come together to help put this uh, conference on. It is the conference on the West Coast, the Cascadia Corridor. So for those of you listening who are not familiar with that, that is the province of British Columbia, Washington State, Oregon State, California State. So essentially the West Coast of North America. Maybe we'll include Alaska. I don't know, are they part of the Cascadia Corridor, Amy? Or does it end? Yeah, does it end in DC? Yeah, because I think we might've talked with some Idaho people too. Oh, look at that. Hey, well, we'll just call everybody Cascadia region. Let's just go for it. Why not? (laughs) Uh, So today we have the Amy Hoffer with us. And Amy, why don't you take a few moments to tell us who you are and where you are right now? Yeah, thanks for having me, Tim. Um, I'm Amy Hoffer with Open Oregon Educational Resources. I'm the OER coordinator for Oregon's public higher ed. So seven universities and 17 community colleges. And I've been doing this since 2015. Very cool. Is is the is Oregon University included in your in your group of universities and colleges? Well, when I first moved to Oregon, I thought that every university actually had the same name because we have Oregon State University, University of Oregon, Portland State University. I was like, why are these different from each other? But yeah. <laughs> so is 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 university of oregon part of your group exactly yeah it is go ducks yeah. I'm a, i was a big ducks fan when mary uh mariota was there and um i tell you i've driven through portland and through oregon a number of times and it is it is distinct i gotta tell you that northern part of oregon it's all orange and black you get past that and it's almost literally the middle of oregon if you get into the southern part of oregon it's all yellow black or silver yellow or whatever color they're wearing this week but um very cool very cool yeah i think you're talking about sports right now (laughs) yes Yes, i am yes i am um i i was a big uh oregon football fan for a while when mariota was there and uh anyway maybe out of your wheelhouse, but that's okay. I was actually on the campus of Oregon University or the University of Oregon, I should put it that way. Um, Beautiful campus. Like some of those buildings are over a hundred years old on that campus. Oh, it's crazy. You just look around and you're just like, okay. And then you're right beside the new building that I guess, you know, what's his name? Phil Knight helped pay for the seven gazillion dollar building with the the you know the infinity pool in the front contrast that with a building that was built in like the late 1800s you're like hmm it's interesting campus yeah (laughs) sorry just 
<laughs> geeking out a little bit. Um, Amy, how did you get involved in OER? Oh, that's a good question. I, um, I really learned a lot on the job, I gotta say. Um, and I have continued learning this entire time, which is why I'm one of the lucky people that can say that I really love my job because I'm constantly learning new things. Um, and, you know, for me, open education, it's like this, like very interesting intersection of like an economic argument where you're helping students save money. And then there's this whole like innovative pedagogy piece where faculty can, you know, take advantage of the affordance of the open license to do new things. Um, and it's, it's a both and, right? Like it's both of those things and that really keeps me interested. That's cool. Do you have to tell people the difference between open ed resource and open ed pedagogy? Yeah, sometimes. Um, yeah. And it's, it's just interesting. Like it really depends on who I'm talking to because, um, you know, depending on what you want to be talking about, sometimes you just say affordable textbooks because everybody knows what that is. Right. Um, even though it doesn't necessarily have to do with like copyright or licensing status. So, um, so yeah, it kind of, it kind of depends on who I'm talking to and, and why. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So have you always been in Oregon or have you, uh, no. moved there? I moved here 10 years ago from California. Oh, from okay. Yeah. So you moved yeah. a little further North, eh? Yeah. Nice. Where'd you go to school? Uh, well, I went to library school um, at San Jose State, um, which at the time um, was like an hour from where I was living in Oakland. And it was just before um, library programs were starting to be online. And so to be in state, it was UCLA or San Jose State. And I thought, OK, I can drive. I can make my schedule so that I drive down about once a week. And I found a carpool buddy and we did that. And then I, I was able to find some classes that met in the East Bay. Um, and then pretty much after I left the program, went fully online. Um, and I did take a couple of online classes, but it was so much at the beginning that um, it, it's interesting. Like, I don't think that I particularly under like experienced online learning from the student side, the way that people that are in higher ed now are experiencing it. So yeah, it's changed yeah. so much, hasn't it? It has changed so much. Yeah. Yeah. I remember taking distance ed where I had to mail it in. Like I had to lit, I printed my mm -hmm. paper off, put it in a manila envelope, licked it, stamped it, send it off, wait three, four weeks. <laughs> yeah. I think that Oregon actually, some of the community colleges have like um, radio bandwidths. Because historically they were doing courses by radio. Yeah. I don't know if they still broadcast courses that way or if they just still like have the rights to those bandwidth. No way. Yeah. We have some very rural parts of Oregon. Oh, that, yeah. that is so cool. Like, did you just yeah. turn in your radio FM 95.3 and there's your organizational behavior course? Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. That's truly one way, right? I mean, obviously you're just listening to the radio, but that, that is very cool. That is very cool. So what's happening in your region when it comes to OER? Like I know Oregon's a big state. I, I get it, but what's happening with OER in Oregon right now? Yeah, there's a lot actually. Um, well, so one thing that we're doing, um, you know, we've got Cascadia coming up in April um, but May 14th, we're going to do a statewide um, OER symposium. 
for Oregon OER folks to come together and celebrate that we made it through this really challenging academic year and, you know, do some reflection. Is there anything that we appreciated that we might want to keep? Um, do we want to do some visioning where we um, don't go back to normal, where we have like a new normal and we're not carrying everything forward with us? Um, so hopefully that won't be too big <laughs> and ask for a one day um, symposium. Obviously it's virtual like everything else. So we're working on a flipped model with asynchronous content that's pre-recorded and then the interactivity um, hopefully is going to be so engaging that people are going to really want to do the stuff ahead of time <laughs> and not just check their email on the day that they set aside for the conference. Um, so that'll be May 14th and I'm really looking forward to that. Um, so that's one thing that's going on. Um, and then in the program, like within Open Oregon Educational Resources, um, we're on a two-year data collection cycle that kind of tracks with our bienniums. Oregon just does everything on a two-year cycle for better and worse. So for me, I've been, um, you know, looking into how to get away from having a million spreadsheets and into a relational database so that I can be um, dealing with all that data. But then um, the fun part is to be able to talk about the impact of the program as a result of you know, all the work that we've done and all the work that it takes for all the point people to gather the data, you know, you've got all those inputs and then you can really show, you know, this had a real impact on students in these very specific ways, you know, looking at the grant programs, looking at what each institution has done, interacting with the statewide OER program. So that's, that's going to be a big one for the spring also. Oh, for sure. For mm -hmm. sure. And always so encouraging, right? When you see the impact, because you kind of have a sense of what's going on and, and kind of how you're changing things from even grassroots all the way up to, you know, the upper levels. But when you get that data back and you see that, you know, whatever you're looking for, whether it's money saved or, you know, courses that have adopted OER or even new OER has been produced, you're just like, okay, we're making a difference here, right? Totally. And also because the program has been going since 2015, um, with any kind of assessment, it's so important to have time pass, you know? And so something that maybe in 2019 was a baseline number, now we're comparing something else against that to see like, where are we going um, and how to track that? So yeah, it does, it does get like pretty interesting in yeah, my opinion no, maybe not for everybody oh but, no yeah. i think i think it's i think it's fantastic have you have you noticed or have a gut feeling about the impact of covid on oer adoption that's a really good question um to be honest i don't know um i think that it it might be one of those things that but things that varies from one institution to the next um, depending on what kind of groundwork had already been laid. Um, because at some institutions, it, it felt like, okay, faculty are taking their courses online. There's already a really active conversation about OER. We can see where this is heading. You know, this was the reason, this was the emergency that made someone like move quicker than they might have otherwise. Um, and then at other institutions, I think it was like, we're in an emergency, 
we just have to focus on remote learning. Like we can't even read one more email, which is also a totally understandable way to handle what we all went through. So um, I think it'll, I think, I think it'll be interesting to look back and try to sort of sift it all apart. But yeah, I don't actually know right now. Yeah. What's the, yeah. what's the, the feeling of campuses in, in Oregon? Are they going to be opening up in the fall or are they already open up now? Hmm. Again, it really varies. Um, you know, I talked with somebody this morning who works in a library where they're keeping a computer lab open and they're staffing that right now. Um, you know, and so part of the librarian's role is making sure that the rules are being followed to do that safely. Um, we've got other campuses that are really like, let's keep everybody off campus as much as possible. Um, so yeah, in terms of the fall, I think it's, um, I, I don't know if anyone has totally landed on it yet. And some people might be clinging to hope. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, like faculty are clinging to hope that we'll go back face to face. I mean, everybody really, like, I think, I think in some cases, though, the schools that have called it really early, like, you know, the schools that last fall were saying, we're going to stay closed in the spring. Um, it's not the outcome that anybody wants to hear, but at least for the students and faculty, you can plan ahead and you just know this is what we're doing. Um, and I don't think we have that clarity yet for the fall. Yeah. 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 Well, if it makes it any easier, we don't have a lot of clarity up here either. And uh, some some institutions have been pretty aggressive in making the decision quicker, um, which, like you said, has helped everybody. Um, I have I teach two classes uh, at night, and the majority of them, if not all of them, would rather be face to face because I ask the question, and and I'm like, huh. But the, but you know, you get, you get the answer back of, well, I love the commute. Like I don't have to commute back and forth to school anymore. And you know, most of them are working and most of them are taking more than one course and you're like, Oh, mercy. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's hard because there aren't actually any good solutions except to like get everyone vaccinated as quickly as we can. Um, you know, and that's such a slog. So you know, it's, it's really hard. It's, it's a bunch of not very great options. Anyway, you look at it, I think not to be a pessimist. Yeah, no, I don't think you're being pessimistic at all. Yeah. My, my wife's that way. And she says, I'm not a pessimist. I'm a realist. <laughs> <laughs> and then she goes in and if I'm right, then good. And if I'm wrong, then I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm even happier because then it's, it turns out better. Right. <laughs> so it's all good that way. Um, Talk to us a little bit about your connection with Cascadia in the past. I mean, I want to tell you one more thing about Oregon. Oh, first. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so we have a um, bill that was introduced with House Bill 2919. And what it does is it sets targets for faculty to report their course materials adoptions in time for the cost information to be available when students register for classes. And it's like in some cases, if you think about when you can register for fall, that might open in the spring. So like way earlier than some faculty start thinking about it. Um, but to be able to really have that transparency for students, not that they rush out and buy their textbook immediately, but so that they can start planning their budget and really know the total cost of attendance when they're registering. Um, yeah. So and this is 
you know, we have the no cost and low cost schedule designation requirement um, that bill passed in 2015. And this is kind of a follow on because it's like, okay, we can only put in the cost information that we have. So now we need to get to this reporting piece so that we actually have the information that we need to do that. That's very cool. That's very cool. Because even as yeah. a um, as a faculty member, I would be proactive in in announcing that the textbook is free, right? And yeah, yeah, that's that's very cool. No, that's good. Makes me excited. Exactly. And and the other thing that's been interesting through like, you know, revising and talking to people and coming to a consensus about what can we all agree on, it is that transparency piece. It's not about saying use this kind of material or pick this or that. Like it's not about academic freedom or choices. It's really just about share the information earlier. You know, whether it's a free open textbook or an expensive textbook, one way or the other, students need that information, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And new faculty would want that information too. Like if I was a new faculty member, I'd be like, okay, I need every little piece of information I can get to make this thing work, right? Well, that's interesting too, because then you start getting into the question of like, should departments have default adoption? Because, um, you know, like you, you do start thinking pretty quickly about labor models and the adjuncts that get hired at the last minute, like one day before the term begins, you know? Um, and so are there defaults, you know, and the the way that the bill is currently written, I think it's a 75% target right now. Um, that 75% of courses should be reported when registration opens. And um, one thing that I've been talking with people about is like, okay, the courses that use the same materials every time where you already know, like get those reported. And then that gives you some headroom for the people that do get hired one day before, or the people that like legitimately want to spend the summer figuring out what book to use, right? Like they they get some space by being in that other 25% that didn't report on time and, you know, mm -hmm. we're part of that target. Yeah, no, that's perfect. That's perfect. Is there, is there any movement by universities or colleges in your area uh, in the direction of including OER in their tenure process? Cause that, that's been a kind of a, a, not a hot button topic, but I know it's kind of been one of those cans that we've kicked around quite a bit here in, in our neck of the woods. Yeah, I wouldn't say hot button. I would say like third rail. <laughs> I mean, um, especially, um, you know, the colleges um, have a little bit of a different way of like, you know, continuous appointment or, you know, however they um, do that. And it's um, a little different from how the universities do it. But um, within each university of which we have seven, um, each department is going to have its own bylaws that you know have to do with tenure and promotion and um so it does feel like a really um big lift for the oer point people at the universities um to try to like have that conversation it can feel really political to even bring it up but um yeah but i have been following along there's more and more examples being shared in the us and in canada of really good language that gets included in the documents, like I'm thinking about like the doers um, document that's, um, I don't know if it's quite ready to share. So maybe we shouldn't talk about this, but <laughs> no problem. <laughs> okay. Um, more and more examples that are being shared of um, language that can help people um, figure out 
okay, what are the ways that OER contributes to teaching or research or service? Like, how can you build a case around that and have it be accepted by your committee? Yeah, I think it's really important, right? And yeah, that's cool. And I often think too of of all the research papers that are done, and 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 I get the economics and the and the system behind it. But I think you know you're making you're generating all this new knowledge, and really you're in knowledge generation because you want people to know. It would kind of make sense to put that stuff a little bit more out in the open than put it behind a bunch of paywalls. But that's just me ranting and speaking out loud. <laughs> I, I feel like uh, I feel like I'm speaking to the choir right now. But uh, definitely, I'm thinking of your listeners too. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. They're they're a good group, a good crowd. That's for sure. Maybe we can all band together and create some kind of petition. That'd be awesome. Um, so yeah, I actually, I talked with a um, technical writing. Um, faculty member who had a really interesting take on that. Like she actually um, like there's parts of her approach to teaching technical writing that she feels like this really is my intellectual property. It's unique. I have something really unique to bring to this and I want to publish it in a way where I'm getting royalties on it. But then she also created this really nicely done guide to all the openly licensed um, modules and topics relating to technical writing. Cause she's like that part, that part should definitely students should not be paying for that. It should be openly licensed. Like, you know, let's not reinvent the wheel. Like this is not unique how to write a paragraph, right? Like that kind of stuff. Um, so I felt like, I felt like that was something that, um, is an argument that could appeal to the folks that feel like, Oh, wait a second, maybe this really is mine. And it's like, yeah. And, and what is truly something that's unique and, um, you know, then do you want to think about whether you want to share that with an open license or retain an all rights reserved copyright on it. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's actually a really good perspective. I like that. I like that a lot. Cause you're still honoring the, the, the academic who's doing the work and doing the research and doing the writing and still putting themselves out there for peer review and all that other fun stuff that they got to do. Right honoring all of that. That's good. I like that. Yeah. I'm writing that down. <laughs> I'll send you a link to her guide. That'd be great. Yeah. That would be great. Yeah. She sure. did such a nice job because she shows um, like all the different um, pieces that you might need to teach in a module, like mm -hmm. where you can find those across all the different technical writing resources that have already been shared. That's brilliant. Mm -hmm. And then her guide is openly licensed too. So, so this was her way of um, saying like, there's, there's this thing that I'm going to write that I really want to keep all rights reserved. And mm -hmm. also I really want to contribute to, um, you know, the open landscape for this sure. field. So I thought that was such a nice way to strike a balance. Oh, absolutely. That's amazing. I love it. So tell us about your connection with Cascadia. Yeah. Well, so I went to the first um, Cascadia open ed summit that was two years ago and um, it was co-hosted um, by BC campus and um, the SBCTC in Washington, the State Board for Community and Technical Colleges, and Lumen, and Open Oregon Educational Resources. Um, and I'm so glad that BC campus is hosting again because they do such a beautiful job with the hosting. Like I had people tell me that they could never have come if there hadn't been on-site childcare. And you know, that that kind of really thoughtful, like they had a quiet room for presenters to get ready. Like they just think through these carrying details in such a nice way. Um, and 
So one of the things that we did two years ago when, when it was in person in Vancouver was um, Open Oregon Educational Resources brought um, or had spots to sponsor two people per institution. And we have 24 institutions here. Oh, wow. So I wound up traveling to Canada with 30 friends. <laughs> <laughs> 30 of your closest friends from the exactly, Public Service Institute. Exactly, a good yeah. adventure. That's awesome. Um, it was an adventure in plane tickets and hotels and car rentals and things like that. Um, and I will say, you know, the Oregonians that attended and we had a really good showing of people presenting, um, it really felt um, like a prestigious thing to be at a conference. You know, it's regional, but it's also international. Um, and to be finding colleagues um, and talking to people um, and then on the other hand, I had people who realized like, oh, I don't have a passport or, you know, it's too far to drive to an airport from where I live or, you know, these kinds of things. But now these people will find the virtual conference more accessible. So um, I think there's some trade-offs there and hopefully, you know, with creative thinking, we'll, we'll be able to find those, um, you know, those opportunities to connect that you get face-to-face, -face, but hopefully we'll be able to find that virtually too. Yeah, me too. Me too. And uh, BC Canvas does a pretty good job. Yeah. At the last conference, actually, one of the best things that happened was um, there is a math um, faculty member who lives here in Portland in the same city as me. But I just um, in the afternoon, I was like, oh, I'm just going to take an hour off and not go to a session. My brain's kind of full. And we ran into each other and um, we just sat down um, and he showed me what he's been working on, which actually he, he received a grant from Open Oregon um, in 2015 in the pilot grant cohort. Um, and, and like, I, I sort of always knew that I wasn't really tracking on what he does. <laughs> and so it took us both going to Canada and like skipping a session to just sit down and have him like really explain like, okay, this is web work and this is pretext. And this is what our very accessible online math textbook looks like. And it was just such a great conference moment of like you know just having a little bit of time set aside to connect with people in that way um so that was that was one of those like random spontaneous highlights for me yeah that's very cool cascadia was my first open educational conference that i went to Ooh. cascadia 2019 and then that's i went to oer to 20 down in phoenix and I think that's uh, where we met that's where we met yes mm -hmm. And uh, so this is my third open ed conference. I've been to like, like many, I've been to a ton of them. Um, but Cascadia just had this different flavor to it. And, and it was fantastic. And I had a, I had a great time, met a bunch of great people and um, turned out to be the impetus for my, my secondment two years ago. So um, very, very cool that way. Yeah. What are you looking forward to the most, Amy, in this Cascadia, this virtual Cascadia summit coming up? I think what I'm looking forward to is, like I mentioned, just having this conference um, for our region um, be really accessible to Oregonians who are doing this work. And, you know, all these people that might not be able to travel to Vancouver having that opportunity to find their colleagues regionally. Um, because for me, like, you know, Oregon has amazing neighbors. When I started in 2015, I was cold calling people in Washington, California, BC, you know, all of those 
states and provinces were ahead of where we were and people were so helpful. And so I really think that, um, you know, for other Oregon faculty and OER champions to just have the chance to participate in the virtual format, um, you know, I really am hoping that people will get a lot out of it. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I hope they do. And, um, we just because it's virtual, we, we haven't uh, stopped caring about those little pieces. And uh, so for those who are listening, registration is open and uh, we do have virtual cut childcare uh, offering this, uh, this conference, which as far as I know, is one of the very few conferences that actually offers that. So that's very, I've never seen it before. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. All my kids are older now. So my, 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 Childcare is long gone uh, in, from being needed, but uh, I know it's a big it's a big need for a lot of people, right? And oftentimes, like you said earlier, oftentimes the the breaker when it comes to yes or no, if I can go, and uh, so we're happy to do that. Thanks so much, Amy, for taking the time to to be with me today. And yeah, thanks uh, for having me. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. And uh, just to highlight, this is Cascadia special podcast. And uh, if you haven't registered yet, go ahead and go to the BC campus website and uh, register. You'll see the links there. It's all there. You can't miss it. Get your, your name in the queue. And uh, there's, there's no cap on registration um, because, Hey, we don't have to book a space. <laughs> so it's all good. Um and uh, the Cascadia conference is in the end of April, which I think is a fantastic time to hold a conference because we're getting close to that, uh, that term end. And uh, it's gonna be perfect, it's gonna be great. So thanks again, Amy, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, good to talk to you.
I'm leaving you. I'm leaving you. This lonesome song. This lonesome song. I'm 